Hi, I'm Jack Cush. We're, I'm here with a bunch of friends and real experts in the field of RA and regulatory issues and drug safety. And I've asked these gentlemen to join me to discuss the recent FDA warnings and action wherein um, a box warning is going to be added to all of the currently marketed um, for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, JAK inhibitors, baricitinib, tofacitinib, and apatacitinib about these cardiovascular and malignancy risks. This was a bit of a surprise. Um, I was on record twice in the last month saying if there's going to be you know, a box warning, it's going to affect tofacitinib and not the other ones because they're not under the knife here. And obviously I was totally wrong. I'd like to know your reactions. Artie, what do you think? I, I don't think it was uh, honestly a, a tremendous surprise because we've been hearing about the uh, data from 1133 has been sort of leaking out. There have been press releases. There was one publication so far of unadjudicated data. There's adjudicated data now that we're hearing information about. But I think it's been in the minds of rheumatologists, and I think we've been sharing it with our patients in the clinic. And the fact that the FDA grouped all the jackanibs, I don't think is surprising given the FDA's uh, general proclivity to group things unless there's data to say that you really don't need to group them. Yeah, I would agree with you, Artie. And, and Jack, I do need to correct one statement you made. This is not just for rheumatoid arthritis. The language is for inflammatory diseases. So clearly psoriatic arthritis and other inflammatory conditions will be included under this umbrella as well. What will not be included, the FDA specifically said, will be jacks with other indications, such as those jacks that are in the myelofibrosis phase right now. They will not be affected by this box warning. And as already said, the agency really does like to move towards a global approach when it considers safety. And as much as said so uh, in this release where they said, well, there isn't evidence for the two others because large-scale studies haven't been conducted, but because of a similar mechanism, we're going to extend the language to include them as well. So it's a class effect with the opportunity for nuancing among the three. I don't disagree, but I do want to correct something. First of all, it is amongst all three, and it's exactly the same. It appears to be exactly the same for all three and not nuancing. So there was nuancing with the VTEs, but they don't have the, uh, the, the nuancing with this. Uh, I wasn't surprised that it was all the jacks. Uh, as we've said, as Gibo always says, the absence of evidence doesn't mean the evidence doesn't exist. And the FDA actually stated that. That's exactly what they stated. So it's amongst all three of the approved jacks. What I was surprised about was the fact that it, uh, what they stated was that the jacks are no longer indicated for patients who have an intolerance or can take methotrexate. It has to be after a TNF, which raises another another series of questions, right? Gibo, you were talking about that. Yeah, you know, uh, Roy, I, when I said, I didn't say nuancing, I said the opportunity for nuancing. And clearly, if longer term data comes in on the other two jacks, that will be the opportunity for nuancing if it ever comes out. But um, the questions that came up that we were talking about before we got started was, uh, this refers to the patient who's had an adverse event or is intolerant of a TNF inhibitor. 
But what if the patient is started on a non-TNF inhibitor, which can be done consistent with the ACR guidelines after methotrexate. If the patient has inadequate response to a non-TNF uh, inhibitor or a, uh, an adverse event to a non-TNF inhibitor, does that mean you must go to a TNF inhibitor before you can go to a JAK? I think that's up in the air. Yeah, it's not clear. Uh, but the other problem is, it, 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 I thought this was more draconian than the EMA's position. And the reason why is, is because the FDA... Roy, Roy, describe the EMA position for the audience. So the PRAC came out with their recommendations as a function, uh, it's a group within the EMA, which uh, actually gave you the data. They gave you the data as to why they made the decision, which we haven't seen from the FDA. So it's much easier to understand. But what they said was it was specific for tofacitinib not specific for the other jacks that are approved in the EU, which is phlegotinib, upatacinib, and baricitinib at full dose, four milligrams. Um, and it was specifically for patients who are over the age of 65 or who had one of the risk factors that were in the 1133 study. All right, so that's not a small group of patients because you could be 45 and have a history of heart disease and, and you're going to be in trouble or you're a smoker and you're 35 years old. It's not a small group of patients. But they did try to, 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 to define the real population that's at risk. And what the FDA did was, was they turned around, they looked at the data. The data, what they said was clear and was, that, and was accurate. There is an increased incidence of these events. Uh, which are the MACE, the malignancies, and VTEs um, with TOFA 5 milligrams compared to TNFs. Uh, that's clear. What they didn't talk about was the fact that the incident rates were actually small. The differences were not statistically significant. Uh, we know that. We know that the number needed to harm, because you can calculate that from the information that's out in public, is about 250 for malignancy and over 500 for MACE. And they, they, none of that came out. So it's like you have a 25-year-old who has no other risk factors, and they still can't get a jack after methotrexate. Uh, I thought that was more draconian. Well, Roy, the, the FDA does, in fact, uh, bury that in the second paragraph. They do say that um, in patients who are current or past smokers, those with other cardiovascular risk factors, those who develop a malignancy and those with a known malignancy other than a successfully treated non-monotic skin cancer, the physician should consider the risk-benefit in them. So that concept of uh, other risk factors is still there although it's played down a bit and uh, put lower in the FDA label. Artie, do, you, uh, think, Artie, do could, you think that this is more draconian than what we expected? Is this, or is this driven by the current environment, the FDA, and some of their caution? They're kind of under the gun for a lot of reasons. They are absolutely. The, they are under the gun, and there's uh, a, a lot of hell to be paid for a, a safety decision that goes wrong, where there are not so many kudos for approving a drug that is going to be effective. Um, but I don't know that this is that draconian. Um, you know, you said, yeah, I'd love to be able to use a jack before a TNF inhibitor. 
that never happens uh, for us. I mean, it's it, I can't think of the last time um, that would even be possible just based upon the, the requirements by the payers. So while it, it's in theory, it says, yes, you like, wow, you have to go through this medicine to get that one. In practicality, it doesn't really have that dramatic an effect, I don't believe, at least at least not as of now. And the other thing that's interesting is about the class thing. So the EMA did not say the others were safer. They just did not mention them at all. And I think uh, we had a fellow who uh, we had a patient in clinic yesterday, patient who had had a history of a clot. And the fellow, I think, rightly said, well, I, I think we should avoid all the JAK inhibitors in this patient. And I, I would be very interested to see a practicing rheumatologist. I bet most of them would go along with the position. I, I don't think there are going to be many people who said, oh, geez, this person had a heart attack. I better give him UPA and not give them TOPA. I, I think that the, in our minds, I think we sort of do uh, go with what the FDA uh, acted on. Yeah, so let me just say that there are regional differences in what's available. So in Texas, uh, there are companies in which you could use a jack now before a biologic. There are reason, there are, so those are the regional differences. Um, I don't have a problem using a TNF before a jack. I mean, TNFs work, right? Um, but if you take a look at the uh, risk benefit uh, of these drugs, um, you know, they're at least as good as the TNF clinically. And uh, th there is a safety signal. There's no question there's a safety signal, at least numerically. Um, but I think it really should be up to the individual patient and up to the individual doctor to decide whether or not in this particular patient population after methotrexate, um, whether or not you can use it. Because one of the problems is, is what if a patient can't tolerate methotrexate and won't take methotrexate? You can use a TNF. You know, TNF works 30% of the time in that population. Um, so let me, let me just mention what we all know is that the development of JAKS in rheumatology has been swift. The uptake has been great since the initial, initial introduction in 2012 with topacitinib. And they're, getting, they're gaining momentum with newer indications, works in a lot of diseases, skin diseases, other autoimmune diseases. And there's a lot of momentum going into this. Is this warning going to change either future indications for JAK inhibitors, their use. Again, a lot of people are talking about using JAK inhibitors early in, earlier in disease like RA. So is this gonna change the momentum or future indications? It won't change future indications, but it'll change the momentum. I think it'll change the momentum. So, so I was on another call before this. We talked about this. Many rheumatologists, as already says, will follow that FDA recommendation. And one of the major reasons for this, forgive me, Gibo, is because there are lawyers out there, right? <laughs> so if you happen to start a jack before you start a TNF and the patient does have one of these events, it's going to be very problematic. Um, one of the, but one of the things that, that we shouldn't gloss over is there were events with the TNFs. There, there were. Um, the incident rates for all of these events were very low uh, for, for both drugs. They were very low, but there were events. There were VTEs, there were MACE, there were malignancy. And so that raises the question I have, you know, patient presents, they have early RA, and they don't want to have any risk of any of those. What do you treat them with? Well, the answer is there's nothing that you can treat them with where there isn't at least some risk. So, Jack, I think the momentum issue, I think, is real, as Roy said. Uh, I think it'll be the starkest in dermatology. 
They just got an approval for a jackanib in uh, a dermatologic indication. They are very excited to use it in a number of diseases, not just atopic dermatitis, but uh, hydradenitis suppurativa, psoriasis. I think this uh, will put a, a real caution on those practitioners. On the other hand, um, for rheumatologists, I think it'll put a little caution. And for a GI, I don't know if it'll have that much effect on them, um, but we'll have to see. Well, I mean, I think you're right, but uh, my caveat would be that what we've seen is that the dermatologic use of biologics, targeted synthetics, conventional synthetics, tends to be a little bit more hesitant by many. Uh, they would much prefer that um, that be done by the rheumatologist when overlapping conditions occur. Uh, so, but I think you're right that there will be an uptake by a lot of dermatologists, but I think that the hesitancy in dermatologists may even be as great as in some of the rheumatologists based on the FDA uh, statement. Well, I would change that. I think, the, I think what Artie said was it'll be, the, the dermatologist would be much more hesitant to use a jack with, with this. Is that right, Artie? Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I think that that's true. It's a small number of dermatologists who write for a lot of the biologics, whereas if there's a very safe agent or perceived safe agent like a Primlast, more dermatologists will write for that than will write for a TNF inhibitor even. Uh, more of them are now using IL-23 inhibitors. I think the jackknibs will be a, a, a subset of those really medical dermatologists who uh, are, are okay with risk evaluation and mitigation. Yeah, the other thing that we should point out is that unlike the previous communication uh, regarding TOFA, this one said uh, that the, the dose was irrelevant. So the, the, uh, the warning is for TOFA regardless of the dose used. So whether it's being used at the 5 BID or at the 10 BID for induction in UC, those are the warnings that are in all of them, not just a pass for the lower dose. Because what they were looking at, which is accurate, what, what they stated was accurate. So if the incident rate for um, uh, uh, malignancy was 0.1 with the TNF, it was 0.2 with TOFA. And what they said was numerically there were more, and there were more with five, uh, more, more so with 10. But, oh, Roy, but with that's, five. A doubling, that's a doubling of the risk, Roy. Well, and that's one of the problems. One of the problems they use hazard ratio, and that's how you get the hazard ratio of two, which is different than an incident rate of five versus ten, right? Which is right. but this is difference. about the the non inferiority margins, and they were above the non inferiority margin, as you pointed out, Roy, in your great lecture at Room Now Live on this, where you really spend a lot of time looking at um, the risk. Given that the the risk that is implied here is based on small but significant numbers. Um, as they define it. Um, are these results random or are they real? Let me remind all of you that, that Alan and I know about sitting on the FDA advisory committees about the gout stories, you know, allopurinol versus fibuxostat. One trial shows it one way, another trial shows it another way. Another, they go back and do a third trial. It shows it back to the first way. They do the last one and it's, it, it flip-flops because the population that we're studying here is dirty. They've got a high risk of background events. And then you enroll high-risk patients I mean, do you think if we repeated this trial with the same design that we'd get the same results or it might so, very well be different? So that's a, that's a very interesting question, uh, Jack, and, and I've actually discussed that with people. First of all, the incident rates of mason malignancy in this trial for the TNFs was actually lower than any trial with TNFs before. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was one. 
Number two, I did speak to people who were integrally involved in the study. And I said, you know, one of the problems, one of the things you have to think about is, if you did the study again, would you get the same results? And the answer was, of course we would get the same results. And I'm sitting and I'm saying exactly what you do, which is, you know, I've been in so many trials where you get one result here, you do the exact same trial, and you get the exact different result. So you don't know whether or not it would be there. But the but to the credit of the FDA, which is really there for safety, not for efficacy, it's there for safety, you have this one very large trial. It does show an increased numerical increase in the rates. And I think that that was very appropriate for them to say. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. One of the reasons why I say it's draconian is because, as Giba pointed out, they, uh, this also affects PSO now. And it affects PSA. Uh, and Well, it affects PSA and it affects may uh, UC. AS too, later. NAS, NAS. And those populations are very different than the RA population in terms of their comorbidities, background incidence of events. Uh, for instance, in AS, the background incidence of VTEs is almost zero, right? In RA, you know, no matter what you treat with RA, there is a background incidence of VTEs. So I thought they were, I will use, if you don't want me to use the word draconian, I will say overcautious. Now you can't, you can't really blame them for being overcautious, right? But in my estimation, they were overcautious. So Alan, what do you think rheumatologists are going to do if uh, this warning is out there and we're going to put the skids on momentum a little bit here? Do you think that some of them will think, well, you know, the, all the risks have been with 10 milligrams previously, and now we're sliding in the five milligram BID or the usual dose of uh, 11 milligrams a day you think that they're not going to pay much attention to that? Or um, how many will be worried by this? Well, I think, as we've already heard um, from Roy and from Artie, uh, there will be those who will do a calculus about what other risk factors the patient has and whether they want to take the chance of putting a patient who has a risk factor on a drug that's been publicized as having a risk factor in people who have that risk factor because there is an averseness to litigation and in our population that's well known. So I think that uh, rheumatologists in the community will be doing that calculus, and I think it will affect the prescription of the drugs. And it isn't just the new, the new prescriptions. Now, this was really for patients who is on the drug now. So what do you do with a patient who's on Tofa or UPA or even um, uh, a sinitib and is in remission? doing very, very well and having no side effects. The, as I read the warning, the label will be, you have to take that patient off if they, have to, or, uh, if they haven't failed the TNF. No, if you're on drug, they're telling you to consider, they're telling patients, call your doctor and discuss your comorbidities. And, that's, and I think that's gonna freak a lot of doctors out. And there's gonna be a lot of people stopping it before they see the doctor, the doctor not knowing what to do and stopping the drug. I mean, this is like the VTE story. If you have a patient successfully treated with a JAK inhibitor and the VTE risk comes out, the actual VTE risk by being on a JAK inhibitor is another one or two cases per 1,000 patient years. So are you going to stop a successfully treated patient for a low risk? It's the same number here. Are you going to stop people who are successfully treated 
because of a you know one in two hundred, one in three hundred, you know number needed to harm uh, with one of these events. And if I want to stop, will the patient let me if they're doing well? Um, well, if you don't write the prescription, they don't have a choice. Artie, what do you think? I think we're we're I, I agree. Um, I don't think we're going to be taking people off therapy a lot. I think we're definitely come up. You have somebody who's doing well. Well, then they get an event. They they have angina and they're hospitalized, uh, or they develop a malignancy and it's taken care of. Do you continue the medication? I think you'd be hard pressed too, because now the patient has changed. I think we we want to see you know in these data in the data you know what was the time course of the events? Did you did you get the risky people out early as one would anticipate, and people who were doing well continue to do well? Um, and I think even if we see that, I think the big issue in the clinic is going to be when the clinical cha um, situation changes. The patient's been on Jack for ten years, doing well, but now they're ten years older. That now they have hypertension. Now they have their lipids are higher than they were before. You know, I think when the clinical situation changes, you're going to have to continually reassess and continually make that risk-benefit judgment. Yeah. So if you take a look at the PRAC data, the PRAC data. So the incidence of MACE is numerically higher with TOFA. Of heart attacks, myocardial infarction. The only fatal myocardial infarctions occurred with patients on TNFs not on the jack. So there were more MIs of patients on jacks, but the fatal ones were on TNF. Let's talk about what no one's talking about, which is cancer risk. In, in the data that was released that you reviewed at RNL, um, Roy, you showed a higher risk of lung cancer, and that was mentioned in their press release back in February. But the FDA didn't say anything about lung cancer. They said cancer, and they said specifically lymphoma um, without providing the data. So. Um, should we be worried about these numbers at this point as far as cancer risk? Well, you bring up a very salient point, and the salient point is the FDA to this time, to this day, has not shown you the data that they used the way the PRAC does, right? So it's really hard to make that, make that determination. When you look at the PRAC data, um, the, uh, the, the, there was a, an increased risk of lung cancer. It occurred in the TNF as well. Uh, but those were in the smokers, right? What do you expect? I mean, you're over 65 and you smoke and you don't expect to get lung cancer. You know, give me a break. But that was also true in the patients who were TNF. Uh, the lymphoma risk was numerically a little bit higher as well, right? It was a little bit higher. But the problem is, is they didn't show you the real numbers. They, they gave you the bottom line. And when you take a look at the real numbers, the real numbers are really quite small, right? Doesn't change the result, right? Still a little bit more risk with, 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 with TOF in this situation. But the numbers are really small. So you really, you know, to me, when I, I had to speak to a patient yesterday about this, and uh, we talked about the risk benefit. The patient's in perfect remission, right? An ex-smoker, but no other risk factors. And I said, well, you know, maybe we should change. And Gibo already get, uh, uh, stated what her answer was, ain't no way. And if you, st if you stop it, I'm going down the block. <laughs> All right, let's, let's end with uh, each of your uh, giving advice to your fellows and your younger colleagues about how they're going to handle this. Artie, you want to start? 
Well, yeah, it, um, I think they have to consider it. You know, uh, we always think we're, we're taking comprehensive care of our patients. We're looking at all aspects of their health. But generally, we're busy. We're focusing on their arthritis. But I think this is now something you, you're going to have to reckon with and ask. Um, I think we had been asking about it, but really not in as much detail. I think this is going to bring it back to where when you want to choose a new medicine, you have to look at the risk of cancer underlying, the risk of MACE events underlying, and factor that into what your choice is going to be. Roy? Yeah, so I agree with Artie. Uh, and as I said before, I have no problem starting with the TNF. We've been using them for over 20 years. But I do think that what practicing rheumatologists need to do, which they haven't done, is actually look at treat to target and look at how well the patient is doing and make an assessment at three months, no later than about six months, as to whether the patient really is responding well enough. And well enough means getting that disease activity really under control. Because as Gibo has talked about before, one of the biggest problems with RA itself is cardiovascular disease. It's the inflammation. So if you're not under control, make the switch. But I do think that you're really going to have to listen to what, what, what that black box warning is going to be for multiple reasons. Alan? Yeah, I think uh, my colleagues have uh, pretty much covered the, the, the landscape on this. I think that it's going to require us to engage in that conversation with our patient, trying to respect the principles of shared decision making, at the same time providing them with the essentials of informed consent. And that's what good medical care is going to be. The assessment of benefit to risk and risk to benefit in any given situation. And when it comes to a particular class of, uh, of medications, particularly when there are alternatives, the risks and benefits of the alternatives have to be discussed as well. And as Roy correctly pointed out earlier, doing nothing is an alternative, but it's an alternative that also has risk. So uh, all those things taken together are going to be part of the discussions that we're gonna be having with our patients. I wanna make one last comment about, about something Artie said, because I think it was very important. And that is, we're all very busy. So now I have the patient who has failed methotrexate, right? And I'm thinking about, am I gonna use a jack, am I gonna use a TNF, and if I'm really busy, I'm gonna go right to a TNF and not even have the jack discussion because it's gonna take a lot of time. And at the end of that discussion, most likely we'll be going to a TNF anyway. It will change the way that, that I've been practicing. So I would tell my younger colleagues that use your head um, you've got nine plus years of, ex of experience using JAK inhibitors and know where they work and know what the concerns are and know who you should avoid it. This study adds to your knowledge base and really pertains to high-risk patients. Uh, and it changes the conversation as already suggested. I'd like the last comment to be from Dr. Gibowski, who was also with me on many FDA advisory committees and, and Alan sort of looked at things like labeling and whatnot. Alan, how do you think this is gonna play out as these companies will now, the label has not yet changed, but they're going to have to negotiate changes. Will the label change be the same for all of them or might they be different? Well, I think the label change will be the same for all of them, but there will be differences. Uh, as I said before, there will be class labeling with nuancing. Even for the VTEs, we saw that there were significant language restrictions for TOFA, less so for Barry, and the statement for UPA was a generic one. 
these events have occurred in patients taking these drugs. I think the new warning is going to be across the board, but I think some of the older language about what's been seen in some patients and the fact that it was not studied with the other two may very well end up in the label as well. Class warning, individual nuancing. I want to thank my colleagues who collectively they have tremendous clinical trial experience, were involved in the 1133 trial and have regulatory experience with the FDA. And so their contributions here are invaluable. Artie Cavanaugh from San Diego, Alan Kabasi from New York, Roy Fleischman from Dallas. I'm Jack Fishwood Room now. Thanks a bunch. <laughs>